Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies. I'm Adam McNeil, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Nikki Taylor, who has authored the book Driven Toward Madness, The Future of Slave Margaret Garner and Tragedy on the Ohio. And she comes to us from Howard University. And so welcome, Dr. Taylor. Thank you so much. It is quite an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, um, we're like I said, we're, uh, we're very happy to have you on the channel today um, because your particular book is uh, <laughs> it, it's very deep. It's very deep, and it's also an important story that uh, really needs to be told. So, uh, before we get any further, definitely thank you for for your scholarship. Oh, you're quite welcome, and I'm I'm just really grateful that it is having the kind of impact that it's having. It totally took me by surprise. Absolutely. 100 percent. So um, before we get into the book, uh, we really like to let our uh, listeners here uh, know about the, the, the intellectual trajectory um, that really brought you to this project. So um, if you don't mind uh, briefly giving us uh, a really understanding and a grounding of, of, of really where you come from in, in this story and, uh, and why also uh, why Margaret Garner? Okay. Well, I am from Toledo, Ohio, which is about three hours north of Cincinnati. And Cincinnati is the central location of of many of my intellectual projects. I Mm -hmm. attended the University of Pennsylvania for undergraduate and then uh, Duke University for my master's and PhD. I have had uh, a, a really uh, impactful experience at Duke University where I studied under historian Peter Wood and Sidney. Mm-hmm. And that's where I got interested in the history of free blacks. So that's very different than what most people who do 19th century slavery study, most people who do African-American history study slavery. So I wanted to study the history of free blacks. And in the history of free blacks, I've always focused on citizenship, the struggle for justice, the struggle for freedom. And so this project, Driven Toward Madness, is really a departure from that in a lot of ways. And it really forced me to stretch beyond what I was accustomed to writing about and delve into the darker sides of American slavery. Wow, that is... uh... So that's outstanding. That's outstanding. And so, uh, say you're, you know, you're from Ohio, and and you went to Duke, and some some outstanding scholars definitely come out of Duke. And I definitely believe, uh, with this particular book, Driven Toward Madness, you uh, you definitely give that tradition uh, an extension as well. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I've had a lot of <laughs> a lot of great and important scholars have come out of Duke University. Of course, uh, it's an honor to have attended that program in that time. Uh, 
and so, yeah, they trained us really well, a very rigorous program that probably over-prepared me in a lot of ways for the academy. So I'm very appreciative for the rigor of that program because it allowed me to be able to do a lot of things. My first book was on, it was urban history, Free Blacks in Cincinnati. The second one was on, it was an intellectual history project, which again, was nothing that I had ever done. So that was a, really a stretch. And then this one, um, you know, went back to the basics. I got my certificate in women's studies from Duke. And so this allowed me to bring in all of the knowledge and insight that I had gained there uh, to be able to, you know, bring that all to, to bear in this project. Wow, that's uh, that's outstanding. And so I, I guess since we're on the topic of mentors, are are there any particular mentors uh, specifically uh, besides your, uh, your your folks at Duke, Peter Wood and and such uh, that that really uh, helped you get to where you are today? Um, you know, the, the list is is endless, but uh, one, particular, one in particular, I think, and, and people might be surprised because it isn't a black woman, but his name is Paul Finkelman and he's the one of the scholars of, of law and constitutional history. And so he was the first one to give me my first uh, contract. And so he c- continued to mentor me after that. And so uh, he was one of the ones that was the earliest champions of this project uh, in its various uh, <laughs> forms as I was writing. Wow, that's uh, that's well. Actually, for this particular book, uh, he definitely would have come in handy. That's for that's for sure. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And so um, let, let's uh, let's get on into the book. So um, you know, you talked briefly about uh, this book being a, a relative departure from uh, from your story about uh, free blacks of the period. So uh, how about talking to us about how you really got to specifically this project out of all the projects? Yeah, definitely. The the first book I mentioned Margaret Garner, but because her story was so uncomfortable for me, it, I just rushed through it in the first book. Um, it was uncomfortable because I couldn't fathom the idea that a mother could, you know, kill her child. And so it took a lot of growth and evolution for me to come back to the project. And, you know, be able to embrace it with some maturity and some perspective to be able to really understand what her world was like as an enslaved woman. And so she's uh, something that I was very familiar with because I, 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 like I said, my first book was on uh, Frontiers of Freedom was on the um, free black community of Cincinnati. And so she factors into that when she makes her escape into that city. Of course, I was also aware of her life through uh, the phenomenal novel uh, Beloved by Toni Morrison, and then the film adaptation by the same name. And so all of those things left an impression on me, but I never thought I would be the one to write a biography that centers her and and reclaims her voice, uh, a, a real history book about her that in a lot of ways speaks to and differs from Toni Morrison's piece. So it, it's it's definitely, you know, it was a journey for me, but, um, you know, I'm really glad that I did the project. Absolutely. And I, I definitely believe our listeners uh, uh, either are or definitely will be after they pick this book up. Um, 
And also, just to let everyone know who who might have come in a little late, uh, this the the scholar that we have in front of us now is uh, Dr. Nikki Taylor from Howard University, and the book that we're talking about right now is "Driven Toward Madness: The Future Slave Margaret Garner and Tragedy on the Ohio." And um, you know, it's it's interesting as well. I uh, didn't get me- did not get to mention this offline, but um, I have a little connection to Kentucky as well. Oh, wow. What's your connection? Right. So I actually, um, I used to intern in the summer of 2013 at Abraham Lincoln Birthplace National Historical Park, um, actually in Hodgenville, Kentucky. You know, so it's, uh, you know, so so this particular story about, you know, the the concept of uh, of borders um, and, and the concept of, uh, you know, Ohio in comparison to Kentucky, because obviously they're very close. Uh, but at least I think I would say, like to say in, in our in our minds, in our maps about, you know, what's the north and what's the south. I think that's the convergence. That's really one of the most intriguing. Um, and it blends in definitely well into this story. Um, yeah, definitely wouldn't have this story had it not been for Kentucky. Right. So a lot of people don't know that um, it is really borderland area. On one side of the river, the Ohio River, you have Kentucky, a slave state. On the other side, you have Ohio, which never, slavery never touched the state of Ohio. Um, It was part of the Northwest Territory, so it was one of the few states that never allowed slavery, but yet slavery touched Ohio in in so many ways, such as this story uh, demonstrates. And so um, oftentimes the two states clashed when it came to slavery and fugitive slaves. And so um, it's an important area. A lot of people focus on Philadelphia, New York, and Boston as sites of the Underground Railroad. But um, I argue in my first, second, and this book that this part of the country was just as um, combative. Uh, the, the, The two sides really came to clashes just as much as the eastern cities. No, and, and and I'm so glad that you said that, considering the fact that I am now sitting at in Simmons College in Boston. So uh, that uh, and uh, I actually do work right now with the uh, uh, Boston African-American National Historic Site. And so, you know, we talk about the Underground Railroad, but we have people like Lewis Hayden and others who, you know, were involved from Kentucky. And so, um, you know, the, the parallels are very, very strong. Yeah. Exactly. I'm glad you know that. So we, you know, I don't have to, you know, go over that part of this history, but it's it's really, um, and, and then I should say too, not only is Ohio Northern, but it's also Western, the Western city for m- much of its early history. Um, because at one point that was the frontier of America. And so a lot of the, the culture that comes with frontierism was present in a city like Cincinnati, where people often resorted to mob violence and, you know, bloody violence in order to protest uh, abolitionists and abolitionist activity. So it's a very, um, you know, uh, it was a hotbed of intolerance on one hand, but it also was a very strong community for anti-slavery activism. Absolutely. 100%. And so, um, you know, you speak about this briefly in your intro. Um, You know, when you talk about how you really structured this particular project, um, you know, it's 
it's something that uh, I, I wrote a little bit about uh, Harriet Tubman and uh, Nell Irvin uh, uh, Painter spoke about how it was writing about a particular individual, a very historic individual who did not leave physical, you know, not nothing, you know, uh, uh, primary source documentation that was authored on their hand. And so um, as we go into the the, the book, you know, can, can we can we get you to speak particularly about how you went about, um, you know, your, your process at, at which you came about um, writing this particular book? Thank you for, for mentioning that. Of course, when one is trying to do a project on 19th century African-American history, particularly African-American women's history, we have a troubled archive. It's a very troubled archive. And what do I mean by that? Because African-Americans were largely uneducated or what some would call illiterate, uh, uneducated in a formal way, uh, they didn't often leave direct written records, diary entries, letters, And so it becomes very difficult to reclaim their voices and to reclaim their uh, real sense of agency and purpose because the historical record is very uh, raced. A lot of the documents are written by powerful white men, newspaper editors, uh, plantation owners, uh, legislators, senators, and the such. And in addition to that, the the, the archive is, is gendered in a way that precludes women's voices. Women were not at that time uh, considered political actors. Uh, They were often not allowed to leave their own records as well. So in Black women, you have the intersection of all of that, which means their archive is even doubly or even triply troubled. And what do I mean by that is that it's very hard to find direct evidence from them. So it takes a very different type of historical methodology to be able to reclaim these voices. Nell Painter is one of the pathbreakers in, in doing that with her book on Sojourner Truth. And we know that others who have written about people like Harriet Tubman, also um, Margaret Garner, it, it's very difficult. So uh, you can either just conclude, as some of my students in my Howard history class on Black women's history, well, you know, why do people write books when there's not a lot of evidence? And I say because we must, we must try to reclaim their voices because we have this movement now called Black Lives Matters, where Black voices matter too, and Black history matters. So those voices in history matter. And so we have to dig in untraditional places in order to be able to recover their voices. So what do I mean by that? Uh, We have the records of these great, white, powerful men, and they may only mention Black women in a passing way. And so we we take a piece here, we take a piece there, and then when you put it all together, you start to have more clarity of what life must have been like for these women. And so you, uh, as as a scholar of African-American history, and as a scholar of African-American women's history, a uh, scholar and a historian of that history, uh, I, fe- I felt duty bound to reclaim this voice of this very troubled soul who through her life and her biography really demonstrated and spoke out in thundertones in the records, despite having a lack of you know, traditional records. She spoke out in thundertones about what happened to her on that farm in Kentucky in the 1850s. 
And so um, it became almost like a passion for me to be able to continue to write her story because by writing her story, I felt like I was writing the story of so many enslaved Black women who had a similar experience, but who remained voiceless because A, we don't have enough historians because B, the historians we do have often shy away from this kind of difficult historical research. Another thing that I did to reclaim her voice was um, I had to almost jettison my discipline. I had to throw, yeah, I had to throw off the yoke of the discipline of history, which through it most of um, its main methodologies is very European, very uh, white, and, and it kind of privileges through default the voices of powerful white men and women. And so I had to throw off uh, the, the methodologies and opt for more of an interdisciplinary approach. And one of the main frames that I use is, is Black feminist theory. Ah, okay, definitely. Yeah. So I used, from my days at Duke, you know, I learned about Black feminist theory and why it matters uh, in, in disciplines. And so what I did, one of the main uh, purposes of Black feminist theory as, as applied uh, in a discipline like history is, number one, to reclaim the voices of those whose voices had been muted. And so Margaret Garner is, is someone, uh, she's an example of a voice that had been muted. So that's the one of the main goals of, of utilizing Black feminist theory. Another one is to rescue Black women from stereotypes, which I try to do in one of the later chapters of the book, the stereotype of her as an infuriated Negress, and that's that's in quote, which is, you know, just another phrase for angry Black woman. And so I try to rescue her from that. Black feminist theory also privileges Black women and the people who they love. So her family is very central to this story. And their experiences are deeply connected to hers, which is the, another aspect of Black feminist theory. It does it, it it argues that Black women are very much connected to other people. So, in as much as her experience was her own, we can't understand it without also understanding what her husband endured, what her children endured, what her mother-in-law endured, and so. Um, that's the lens that I used. And, you know, and I think by using that kind of a lens, I think one of the main comments that people say about this book is number one, it doesn't read like a history book, which I thought was, I think that is good. (laughs) And then it, it really, really makes her experiences front and center and you get a real sense of who she was as a person. And so that's why, you know, that's what I was hoping to accomplish by jettisoning my discipline and using Black feminist theory, but also utilizing other uh, approaches, um, including some psychology approaches. I used Nell Painter, who we've been quoting before, her uh, theory, uh, Soul Murder, I applied as well to this project. So it's a little bit of everything. And I think that it makes it more accessible. Uh, It's an easy read. I think most people have told me they've read it within a couple of hours, the whole book cover to cover. Um, And so that's good. I think that that, you know, was an exercise for me of, of just evolving as a writer and not just writing for the academy, but making my 
my book means something to other people who are outside of the discipline and outside of the academy. And that is exactly why we all of that, all of that is exactly why um, I wanted to have you on here for my first interview. Um, and to, to any listeners who uh, who might not know who this particular voice is, but uh, uh, I'm a new host and I was uh, definitely uh, intrigued to uh, have Dr. Taylor on the show, not only on the show, but uh, as my first interview because of really the the, uh, the the excavation that she uh, really produced for for uh, driven toward madness um, and and in part you know you, you talked about uh, black feminist theory you talked about um, a bit of the psychology and um, uh, 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 you said uh, uh, Paul Finkelman um, you you uh, talked to him because of the law aspect so there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, exactly. And then I have the history of emotions. I also have some uh, paint trauma studies theories that, that I've used in here as well. So it's just a lot of different things. And I think it allowed me to stretch as a historian and in order to borrow from disciplines who do theory so much better than historians, but yet the book is not theoretical at all. I just used it as an approach and as a strategy for writing. But the book in and of itself is not theoret- theoretical. So I don't want the readers to be scared away by it. <laughs> everybody. Just just disclaimer. This is definitely a, a book for for everybody. Uh, just, just just let everyone know. Don't want to get anyone scared away, like uh, Dr. Taylor <laughs> said. Um, and, and, and really on that particular point. Um, as well to any listeners, hey, who might be historians, say hey, throw that yoke off, as Dr. Taylor said. Sometimes you just got to do it to be able to produce phenomenal work like Dr. Taylor did for Driven Toward Madness. Um, and so uh, getting particularly into the life of Margaret Garner, um, can you give us a brief synopsis of kind of the, 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 the history of Margaret Garner that puts her into this moment in the mid-1850s? Yeah, she was enslaved on a farm in northern Kentucky. A lot of people assume that Kentucky had plantations like they had in the low country, South Carolina, North Carolina, but it was a farm. And as such, she was um, very isolated in a lot of ways from a larger, more vibrant black community of enslaved people. And so she labored on the farm just with a handful of other slaves from time to time. I think it's you know, he never had more than 12 or 13 slaves, her owner. And she had, she started having children as a teenager. And by the time she left, she had four children. Um, she, she was just in her early 20s with four children and pregnant with another. Uh, she lived um, on a farm uh, and her husband was enslaved across the street and down the road. And his, he lived on that farm. His, her husband was Robert Garner. He lived on a farm with his father, his mother. And, and so they were uh, quite a distance away from Margaret Garner. And so she had to do the caretaking of not only the white family who owned her, the Gameses, by, you know, uh, round the clock uh, uh, slavery. I mean, a lot of people wrongly mis- uh, believe that People, slaves who worked in the house, so to speak, had a very cushy lifestyle. But she literally 
worked around the clock, inside and outside of the house, serving the family, but also serving her four children. She was effectively almost like a single parent with her, the father of her children living on another farm, as well as her in-laws. And her mother and her father are not in the picture by the time she became a mother. So, I mean, it was a really uh, sad existence in a lot of ways. She uh, was subjected to uh, abuse, which I demonstrate in, in my book, Physical Abuse. She had scar, a scar on her face that would attest to the nature of um, her owner's uh, mentality with, in terms of abuse. She also um, may have been subjected to sexual assault. And I talk about that in the book as well um, and how I arrived at that. And so she and her husband who, and her husband, I might say, although he was enslaved by an owner who lived down the road, he was hardly ever in the vicinity because he was hired out uh, around Northern Kentucky. So he was very rarely at home in in the location where the, the story takes place. And her father-in-law, who was Robert's father, was also absent for dozens of years. Uh, he had been hired out in another location in central Kentucky. So that's this, the story of this family. And, you know, it was a lot of transition for the men. They had far more mobility than, the, than, than Margaret Garner or her mother-in-law, who was named Mary. And those women largely stayed enslaved on their farms for most of their lives. Now imagine living somewhere and never leaving that location. Where you live is also where you work, is also where you're being abused, is also where you are being raped. And and it's just it was just a horrific experience for her. And so it challenges this idea that slavery in the north was any more humane that slavery inside the household was any more humane. In fact, it turns that on its head. And I kind of argue that perhaps this was a worse type of slavery, if you think about it, uh, especially within the absence of a strong Black community. And so that was her life in Kentucky. It was a very sad life. And when she and her family decided to escape slavery on that very frigid January night of 1856, it was quite an exceptional act. Uh, Not many enslaved people were escaping from Kentucky at the time, and certainly not many traveled with an entire family intact. And so that's what they attempted to do. And so this book follows them on that journey. It follows them across the Ohio River and it follows them into Cincinnati, where they were eventually uh, doggedly pursued by Margaret's owner, J- uh, Archibald K. Gaines. And so uh, it, it's a riveting story, you know, a story of lost hope, the hope where they thought they had made it to safety. And just when they thought they had arrived to safety in the free state of Ohio, um, they realized that, that her owner had followed them. And so it, it's, it's just the story about an act of desperation that probably was not as desperate as maybe we might believe. And she ended up killing one of her children and tried to kill all the others as well. Um, and so that's what this book is about. So that's why I'd say it's very deep, it's moving, um, and it's, it's 
complicated uh, when you think about motherhood and what a mother will uh, is willing to sacrifice uh, for their kids' freedom. Absolutely, and um, when 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 I think about um, you know telling the history of even you know a place like Boston and and, and telling people that hey guys uh, from you know the 1640s on to 1783 slavery actually happened. So that bad thing that you're talking about that's a, that you think is a Southern story, it's really not. And so this story brings that up. And also it, it, it also brings up for me, um, so like even just casually like listen to like Malcolm X in like the 1960s, him saying, you guys, we need to stop talking about the South. You know, if you're south of the Canadian border, you're south. And in this story. Exactly. And, and this story is also exceptional because. And I think I start the book this way. Uh, black women rarely committed viol- you know, violent acts um, while enslaved. And so it's, it's very different. Um, it's a very um, different moment when she decided to kill her children. And so when we look at the resistance of black women during slavery, most of the time black women resorted to what we call covert covert forms of resistance, uh, poisoning the food, spitting in the food, maybe committing arson um, and things like that. But uh, black women rarely resorted to uh, armed violence, so to speak. And so Margaret Garner's story just reveals um, that in in as much as she was atypical, uh, the things that she experienced were typical. So it, it's leading me in a different direction for my fourth book. And so I'm looking for more uh, examples of Black women who, res- you know, resorted to armed violence to escape slavery or to make some political statement about slavery. And so um, that, bo- that book inspired the fourth book, which is in progress. Oh, wow. And uh, definitely at the end of this uh, particular interview, we'll definitely have to uh, catch up on that particular part uh, for sure. Um, and so, you know, when you talk about, you know, even the history of something like the Fugitive Slave Act, um, you know, which is really the story that um, makes the, the, the escape of, um, of Margaret Garner and, and her family uh not ineffectual, but it would be much different if if it was done in 1849, for example. Um, and it also makes me think about something in 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 in, uh, in public culture recently. Uh, even the story of Underground, right? The the, the television show, um, which I'm not sure uh, some people might not have seen it, but it was a a show, as the name goes, uh, on WGN America uh, about the story of uh, of uh, of a fictional group of people who flee from from the South and end up in, in what was depicted as Ohio. Uh, but even once they were in Ohio, that didn't mean that they were actually free. Exactly. That's, that's true. And, um, you know, even though Ohio was a free state, as you say, you know, the fact is that after 1850, that freedom was tenuous for African-Americans in Ohio. And so many of them tried to move further north to cities like Detroit, and even onward to Canada. So there was no safe place for African-Americans after the fugitive slave law of 1850. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, when you when you talk about, you know, Margaret Garner's particular story, um, can, can you speak uh, uh, a little bit more about, you know, what happened as um, as the uh, as the arbiters of the law effectively um, are, are, are dialing in on on uh, on Margaret and her particular family and and kind of. Uh, talk to us a little bit more about that particular scene and, and kind of, I guess, try to paint the picture um, kind of because when I think about this particular story, there's so many different variables at play here. Um, and and uh, as much as you can in this particular time, would you be able to do that for us, please? Yeah, well, definitely. The Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, uh, although it was a compromise between you know, slave states and free states, and, and I'm sure people know that story. The The particular aspect of that law that affected African-Americans directly was a stronger fugitive slave law, which effectively allowed for regular citizens, and this is important, regular random citizens to become deputized in the recapture of fugitive slaves. And so what that meant is that any white person could just join in and help seize and capture and and bring a presumed fugitive slave um, to justice. It also, the law also had a low standard for proving that someone was your fugitive slave. So yeah, it was a very low standard. So what could happen is that a free black person could be accused of being a fugitive slave and have not only have random white people in their community deputized to take them into captivity, but then, you know, all somebody had to do was say, hey, you know, a southerner, all a southerner had to do was, was testify and say, oh, yeah, I remember her. She grew up around my way. And that was it. You were remanded into slavery just that easily. Um, there were also different aspects of, of the law that uh, kind of put more, there was more of a, a, a reward, I guess, more of a, a font, the judges that presided over, magistrates that presided over these cases got more for remanding a, a, a presumed slave to slavery than they did for freeing the slave. So there was a, an impetus, I guess, or, you know, an inducement enticement for these magistrates to rule in favor of the slaveholders or presumed slaveholders. And so all of that um, really made, you know, African-Americans feel like there was no justice. There was no getting around this law. Uh, Anybody could at all accuse them of being a fugitive slave. Um, Anybody at all could deputize themselves and, and, and bring them into custody. Uh, And so, and then in addition to that, it, it, it kind of, Painted the magistrates and made them lean towards, um, you know, uh, ensuring that the person would be sent to slavery with the higher, uh, you know, uh, costs or the higher, uh, what do you call it? Um, I can't think of the word, um, but payment, a higher payment to the magistrates, yeah, when they uh, return somebody to slavery versus set them free. And so all of those things created a situation and a feeling that there was no no justice, there was no reprieve, the justice system was tainted, the law was tainted, um, the 
Congress people who passed the law were skewed towards slavery. And so it, it just, you know, a lot of African-Americans uh, made an exodus out of the country at that time. And Canada. So when we look at Black Canadians, uh, many of them, their ancestors came during that, you know, after 1850 because of the slave law. So um, that's the situation that Margaret Garner was up against. So when her owner doggedly pursued her into Cincinnati, just following the trail that they left in the snow and in the ice that night that they left, um, he quickly went to the magistrate and, and, and got uh, what he needed to go back, return to the house. He brought with him some deputized whites and, you know, proceeded to break down the door of the home where they were hiding. And, and that's what it is. It's just this situation where white people at the time could and did simply just enter black homes without warrant, without any just cause. And so black people were really vulnerable at that time, both slave and free because of that law and also the laws that didn't provide equal protection for them. And so, um, so that's what happened when he broke into the door of the uh, Elijah Kite's home in order to reclaim Margaret Garner and her children who belonged to him. Um, it just created a firestorm of events. Um, her husband first tried to resist, and then she, uh, you know, feeling like the walls were literally closing in on her, uh, did what she had to do in order to try to free her children from the misery, a lifetime of misery that, that she knew firsthand slavery would produce for them. Wow, that's, uh, that's definitely a vivid picture. Um, because when, when we talk about that particular scene, um, what, comes to my, what comes to my mind, honestly, as you're painting the picture, is of really, you know, I, I think about uh, there's a particular song uh, Harry Belafonte did, uh, Oh Freedom, you know, and before I'll be a slave, I'll be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free. That particular song, whenever I speak and I think about uh, what enslaved people were up against, and in particular, as, as you were saying, when she felt like the walls were caving in on her, she did what, you know, she she, she did what she did. And, you know, it, it's definitely something that uh, as you talk about, you know, these equal protection, these, you know, honestly, if, if I would have shut my eyes and not known this book was here, Driven Toward Madness, that is, it would have almost sounded eerily similar to what African-Americans, you know, had faced in the 20th century um, with, with uh, the, the police state or the carceral state. And so when people try to talk about these particular parallels between, you know, the past, you know, the African-American past and the African-American present, and potentially also the African-American uh, uh, future, um, there's so many webs that connect and, and, and they go right into that particular moment uh, with Margaret Garner, at least in my estimation. Yeah, I agree with you completely. Absolutely. And so um, when this particular moment happens, what's the what's the aftermath? How is it being depicted in um, in, in, in newspapers, abolitionists? How are how is the world around uh, the, what happened with Margaret Garner? How do they actually uh, uh, take in this particular information? Yeah, well, and, and this is interesting because the, the, the bloodiness of the scene when they when. When um, 
you know, the, the, the crowd that had gathered outside of the Elijah Kite's house to, to watch the, de- the white deputies, self-styled deputies, break into the home of this free black man, Elijah Kite in Cincinnati, in order to reclaim his cousin, Margaret Garner, and her, ex- her family and extended family. Um, you know, when the deputies first brought the baby out of the house, the, yeah, the crowd gasped in horror. I mean, this was a baby that was nearly decapitated. And they looked and all of her children had blood on them, you know, from her attempting to, to murder all of them. Um, and the one that died probably got the worst of it, but she had another little girl that she damaged pretty bad too, which I talk about in the book. And so people were horrified, but immediately there was a level of sympathy for her in the black community of Cincinnati, particularly among black women. And so I talked to my students at Howard about this. I said, um, you know, there, there was this rambunctious crowd of black women that went to the courthouse every day they tried to follow along as the prisoners were being led from the jail to the courthouse. And they got a little feisty with, with the uh, sheriff's office, you know, at times. And, and, and I said, well, these women basically had a great amount of sympathy for Margaret Garner because she was them and, 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 and they were her, right? And so they understood how difficult uh, of a choice she had in that moment. Um, and, and, you know, and so they, there was a level of support for her among the black women, first of all, uh, abolitionists in Cincinnati and beyond throughout the nation immediately sympathized with her because although Margaret Garner had killed her baby, she didn't intend for it to be a political act. It became politicized because of, uh, just the division in the country along geogra- geographical and slavery lines. And so it became a political act without her intending it to become a political act. So abolitionists interpreted as, oh, this was an indication of how horrific slavery was. Um, they talked about the implications of sexual abuse. And Sarah Riemann was among those. And so was Lucy Stone. And so was Frederick Douglass, who hailed Margaret Garner, a hero. A lot of people were surprised to learn that Frederick Douglass considered her a hero. And he named her, he named her in the pantheon of black heroes in his day, including Crispus Atux and, and, and Nat Turner. And so he named Mar- Margaret Garner. So that's where the black community, the black women in Cincinnati, Black activists and white abolitionists considered her a hero. They considered, um, and they had a great amount of empathy for her situation. And then on the other side of it, the uh, Southerners, who were not all slave owners, but yet a lot of them sympathized with slave owners for some odd reason. So they, they, you know, considered her, as I said earlier, an infuriated negress. They thought she was a mad woman. They said she was particularly evil and vicious. And so there was these two Margaret Garners, so to speak. How could there be two Margaret Garners? How can she be an angel and a hero on one hand and this demon on the other hand? And so my book navigates through both of those to try to find out, well, what's going on here? 
And so I argue that both sides used a lot of uh, hyperbole um, to paint whatever vision of Margaret Garner they wanted to paint. And so she became a symbol on both sides of the fence. And, you know, here she was just, you know, trying to do what she could to protect or save her children from, as you say, this type of death that they would uh, was surely face while enslaved on the Gaines farm. You know, uh, she, she never intended to, to be an abolitionist when she, when she did that, and nor did she intend to be in the national media. She just literally wanted to save her children from what she considered to be the horrors of slavery. Absolutely. And, and, you know, on that particular point, you know, really humanizing her and, and taking her out of the political discourse and just thinking about um, this just as a human act, because humans are just <laughs> we're just a mixed bag. Right. You know, and so um, it, it sometimes, you know, you get into these philosophical debates with people um, about, you know, oh, what would you do this and this? First of all, I don't think you necessarily want to be in that situation for one. And two, um, I don't think anyone knows what you would particularly do because the spectacular is only spectacular because it's abnormal. And so, you know, this particular story with um, with Margaret Garner it, it, especially in how you you uh, paint the picture uh, for for the listening and, and, and reading audiences it is just like that it, it it's not a it's not linear in one way or the other because in many ways it wasn't meant to be it was just supposed to be an act that she produced exactly. and you, you know I had something I, I wanted to let the uh, listeners know that you know, I, as I said, I started this project and I had written about her very quickly in my first book. And, and as a mother myself, I couldn't imagine what she did. And the very, the very last sentence of the book, which is the last, the last sentence of the book that I wrote, that I actually wrote, I wrote my acknowledgments last. And the last sentence of my acknowledgments on page, uh, Roman numeral page 16 it, it finally clicked. I was talking about my daughter and then a rush came over me, or just a rush filled me. And I, the last sentence I wrote of my daughter, she embodies what Margaret Garner may have dreamed of for her own daughters, a life pregnant with possibilities, hope, and boundless freedom. And in that moment, Adam, I, I got it. I got, I got it. It's like, it, and it makes my, the hair on my neck crawl just to think about how the very last sentence of the book, I finally got what she wanted for her children. It's not always about what she was running from, but what she wanted for her children on a deep, on a deep level, boundless freedom, a life pregnant with possibilities and hope. And so I got it. And I couldn't imagine what what it would be to raise a child without those opportunities, without that hope, without that boundless freedom for them. And and to only expect a life of slavery and, and rape. I can't imagine that. So in that moment, I never again said what I would do if I were her. Right. I never again said that. I never again 
judged her negatively for her decision because I did not live in that moment. My child, my girl, my baby girl didn't live in that moment. So I can't imagine any other alternative that she, that would have been better than, than the one she tried in that moment. Absolutely. And um, I, I remember, um, you know, reading through this book um, and getting to that particular um, quote that, that you just that you just did um, at the end of the acknowledgments, because, you know, as you said, you know, a, a life pregnant with possibilities yeah. just I, I, and I think sometimes we take for granted being able to look towards a future and actually be able to see some a picture that you actually like. Exactly. Exactly. And that that that's everything. You know, it's wrapped into freedom and it's wrapped into hope. We're you know, we're forward looking people now. Mm-hmm. But what if you lived in a moment where there was no future? Where your future was your past, it was your present, but there was nothing better ahead. And so that that's you know, one of the, the things that, you know, still resonates with me um, about her life is, is, you know, the lack of choices that she had. Absolutely. And, and, and on that particular point, you know, you, 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 you spoke about, you know, not judging uh, 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 Margaret Garner on, on her on her actions, because as you said, you know, it you know, really don't want to even put yourself in that kind of in that kind of mind frame. And that last part about hope and boundless freedom, you know, when, when you talk about, you know, when you ask a conventional person on the street, you know, what does freedom mean to you? They'll speak about all these grandiose, you know, uh, things from the American Revolution or the founding of, of the United States of America. But if you're African-American, boundless freedom was it was in it was in it was in you because, you know, the human soul, you know, yeah. not being you know, enslaved, but, you know, maybe not, but, but, and thinking about not allowing what is in your present to impede your visions of the future. And sometimes as, as you wrote about in this book, in many ways, um, that vision of the future is involved in just breathing and living another day. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Thank you for saying that so eloquently. Yes, absolutely, and 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 definitely. Uh, thank you for uh, the particular uh, uh, work that you produced here, um, because I, it's definitely been you know the the time is just flowing by, and I'm just like, wow, I, I, we can definitely do this um, all all day. And so, um, if you don't mind, in, in the last couple minutes that we have you, would you be able to give us a particular history about what happens to Margaret Garner after this particular moment? Um, and really how she's used, um, not only in the, in that particular time frame in the late 1850s, but also going further in, in time as well, uh, that bleeds into Toni, uh, Morrison being able to write about her, um, in, in the 20th century. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than giving away too much to you. Of, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say that she has a very that few years uh, after that, and then she dies in her 20s. And, you know, her life, her kids, 
and everyone except her husband disappear from the historical record. I literally tried my best to locate her descendants, her children, by looking through the trails that historians use, and they disappear. Like so many of our ancestors and the ancestors of your listeners, they disappear, not, not literally, but I mean figuratively from the historical record. No one ever mentions her kids because they only had first names in the slave uh, schedules and things like that. They disappear from our view. And so that's sad to me. A woman who went blazing into the pages of the history books to have, you know, just a few years of life after that, very sad years. Uh, she was sent south to the deep south, uh, being sold down the river. That's literally what happened to her. And um, to have her children, even the one in her womb, disappear. I have no idea what happened to her children that remain. Um, one of the little girls had another horrific fate, almost as horrific as the, the fate of her sister who was killed by Margaret Garner. So that happened within, you know, a month of, 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 of Margaret killing the first little girl. So now, you know, within a month, two of her female children are dead. And then within two to three years, she's dead. And, you know, we don't know what happens to her sons or her, her parents-in-law, her, her husband's parents. And so she disappears. And it wasn't until Toni Morrison revived her uh, through her novel, Beloved. And she revived her in a fictional character named Seth. And, and, and Seth's life is very different from the life of the real historical Margaret Garner, but the story is very powerful, uh, beloved in, in, in the story of Seth. And so, you know, I was very fortunate to have those shoes uh, to walk in or to guide me as I, I, I had to, you know, create this history of Margaret Garner. So like Toni Morrison, I talk a lot about trauma and memories are important and scars that never heal, all of those motifs that she uses are actually real things that um, happen to Margaret Garner in so many ways. And so, um, so uh, Toni Morrison revived her. And then there is a man by the name of um, Steven Weisenberger who wrote a book about the case called Modern Medea. But in that book, he's an English professor uh, by training. So the book is not, you know, as historical as maybe a, a historian's book would have been. And Margaret Garner is lost in the pages. He focuses mostly on the legal struggle over her between Ohio and Kentucky and doesn't really give that much life to who she was as a woman. So I'm the first black woman to write this book about Margaret Garner. And, you know, there's only a handful of books about enslaved women um, or biographies about enslaved women who who waged violent resistance. Uh, another one is Celia, a slave by Milton McLaurin. Uh, and, and so th there are just a few of those like that. And so, um, you know, so that that's the history of what happened to her and the history of her history. Well, hey, listeners, 
this story is definitely one that uh, you all should definitely pick up. And uh, once again, we're talking with um, Dr. Nikki Taylor, professor of history and department chair in history at uh, Howard University in Washington, D.C. And um, this book, Driven Toward Madness, The Fugitive Slave, Margaret Garner and Tragedy on the Ohio is definitely a book by uh, Ohio University Press that you all definitely need to pick up uh, because it, it, if you think that this story here uh, that she's laid out is good, just wait until you until you read it. And so, uh, in, like I said, in the last couple minutes that we have you, um, you had spoken about a particular project um, that you have in the works, and uh, just so that we all uh, can know what's next in in, in your in your working uh, life. And so, uh, can you tell us a bit about that project, if you don't mind? Yeah, th- thank you for the opportunity. I'm working on a book about enslaved women who participated in armed revolt or armed revolution in various ways, either through participating in slave insurrections, um, arson, committing arson, murdering their owners, as Celia did, um, Milton McLaurin uh, uh, laid out in Celia's Slave. And there were uh, others who participated in, in other you know, not full-scale insurrections, but definitely armed revolt on their various farms and plantations. And so just like Driven Toward Madness, there's all of these anecdotal pieces that I'm trying to pull together, just mentions, like we know that Nat Turner had a wife. We know that uh, Charles Desalons had a few women helping him in his revolt. And so it's painstakingly uh, gratifying. So I and I'm trying to, you know, basically challenge the narrative that insists that black women largely committed covert and or less direct, more passive forms of resistance. And so I'm insisting, yes, we also, you know, committed, you know, some very brutal and bloody, bloody resistance as well. And so that's a project in its beginning stages. And I'm very excited about it. Hopefully that um, you know, maybe my last history book. Mm, mm. Well, definitely. Um, we, we at the uh, African-American Studies channel would love to have you back on the channel uh, to be able to talk uh, about that book, because it definitely sounds like a project that uh, is going to readjust the narrative uh, on, on really what uh, uh, what not only the capabilities of black women were, because clearly Margaret Garner is a case to it, but also uh, really about what they actually did and how vocal and how active they actually were, which isn't what really what you get um, in a lot of the uh, popular histories. Um, and so uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Taylor, for uh, spending time with us. We, we know it's uh, the end of the semester. And so, you know, it, it's, it's a real busy, busy time. And so we uh, at the African-American uh, Studies Channel uh, definitely appreciate your, your time. And uh, uh, definitely please tell our listeners uh, uh, not... Not bye, but see you later. Thank you so much, Adam, for having me.